1 Peter chapter 2. We will read that in just a moment. When I was a student at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, I used to frequent this hole-in-the-wall diner called Frank's uh, every week, one semester, actually. And at Frank's, I met this bouncy, sassy waitress named Mabel. Mabel was great. Uh, Mabel was a Christian, and it turns out she's from Indonesia, and she had left her country of Indonesia with her family because they had been persecuted for their faith. Her family was constantly mocked and ridiculed and even threatened for a number of years. Eventually, her house was burned down by angry religious zealous, which is the reason why she left and came to the United States. And here she was in front of me with a big smile on her face, serving me up some pancakes, week in and week out. How do you make sense of that? You know, you flip on your television or you watch a movie or you scan the news, and it's, it's fascinating nowadays to see how Christians are viewed. According to some, we're a bunch of bitter, angry folks who are totally out of touch with reality. And that makes life difficult for us, right? Sometimes people dismiss us, they overlook us, they walk away from us, they flat out ignore us. All because we are Christians. We, we claim the name of Jesus. And they wonder things. They ask us questions like, how can you really believe all that stuff in the Bible? You've got to let that stuff go. You've got to be in step with progressive culture. And sometimes we get openly mocked too. You know, um, so we try to hold on to these biblical convictions. Who knows, knows how long we'll be able to stay employed in certain places? It might be difficult 10 years from now to keep our jobs because we're a Christian. Will another bakery shop get shut down? Will you get fired because as a coach you pray with your players after a high school football game? That happened in the last couple of weeks in the state of Washington. Maybe you're a student in school and other kids are nice enough to you, but you just can't seem to break into certain social circles. You don't participate in some activities and the kids know it, and so you're not quote-unquote in. You've been relegated to average or mediocre social status. You know, being a Christian today is risky stuff. It means accepting shame. And rejection. But sometimes we trade in the opportunity to stand up for Christ. We trade that in to save face, to save our reputation. Why not blend in just a little bit? Why not avoid making waves? Why not avoid sticking out? That's easy to do. But when Jesus called you to be one of his, when, when Jesus called me to be one of his own, Did he call us to a life of comfort and convenience and honor and having a good reputation in this life? Or did he call us to a distinctly cross-shaped life? Peter's readers experienced this challenge of shame and rejection too. 
In our passage this morning, it provides tremendous encouragement for Christians who are experiencing rejection because of their Christian faith. But it's also a great passage for cowardly Christians like me and maybe some of you, I don't know. We're tempted sometimes to punt on our witness of Christ, to to pull back so that we can save face. Now think about the person who's writing this letter, the Apostle Peter. At one time, he was a coward too, right? You remember him denying Christ three times on the night that Jesus was on trial? He did that to save himself from shame and rejection. But there was hope for Peter. God took that man, that self-centered reputation man, and he transformed him into a man that would be Christ-centered, shame-bearing, cross-bearing, and he would eventually be the rock of the church, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And God can transform us as well. And you know, it's, it's got to be from those tough lessons in Peter's life that he was able to put pen to parchment and write these very words in 1 Peter chapter 2. So let's read starting in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, give us understanding of this passage so that we may apply it to our lives. Help us to see Jesus for who he is in this passage. Help us to see ourselves as your people clearly, your precious people in this passage. Father, would you build us up as a church, as a people who want to persevere, a people who want to bring Christ to our neighbors and our friends and our family, a people who want to love and show concern for all kinds of people. Father, would you build us up this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So Peter's answer to this question that we have, how do we survive, how do we thrive in a culture that may mock us? It's a fascinating answer. 
He doesn't offer tips on how to outthink our opponents. He doesn't give us political strategies to wiggle our way back into the majority group. He's not concerned about building up our reputation in this world. Peter's concern is more fundamental. He he's simply wants us to know who we are. That's his concern in this passage. He wants us to get our identity right. He wants us to know, as he's been teaching for the first couple chapters, that we are elect exiles. That we are, as it says in verse 11, we are strangers and aliens in this world. So how do we survive and thrive in the midst of shame and rejection? Well, Peter's answer is to know who you are. To know who you are. Now, in this passage, Peter uses the picture of, of, a, of a building project to talk about Christian identity. God is building a spiritual house, a temple, and that temple is the people of God. And so as we explore how this house is put together, we're going to get to know our identity. So let me give you three themes about Christian identity from this passage. Here's the first theme. You see this in verses 4 and verses 6. We are built on Jesus, the cornerstone. We are built on Jesus, the cornerstone. Now, whenever you build something, you've, of course, got to start with the foundations. You've got to start with the foundations, and that's exactly where Peter starts. He starts with Jesus. Now, notice the descriptions of Jesus in this passage. In verse 5, we see that he is the living stone. That's because God raised him from the dead. In verse 6, we see he is the cornerstone. And in both verses 5 and 6, Jesus is the chosen and the precious stone, chosen and precious to God. So this living stone, this cornerstone, is the, the foundation of the building. If you, if you go to the temple site today in Jerusalem, some of you may have been there, I've been there, I've had the privilege to go to Jerusalem, and you see the Solomonic Temple, and, and you know there, there's the wailing wall in front of you, and that famous site. Well, way down in the depths are these these huge stones, these massive stones. And one of those stones was the cornerstone of this, this temple. And you put that cornerstone, you put that in just right. You have to put it in just right. You have to place it accurately so that all of the other stones could be on top in their proper place. Everything depended on this cornerstone, this foundational stone. And in God's building project, the church, the people of God, Jesus is the foundation. Everything else is built on this foundation. Now notice, this living stone, this foundational cornerstone is chosen and precious to God. You can't imagine the affection and the confidence that God the Father has in his son Jesus. You know, you get a glimpse of this when uh, when you see Jesus at his baptism, you remember the scene when the, uh, Jesus is baptized, John the Baptist is there, there's some people around, and the clouds part, and there's a voice from the heavens, the voice of God the Father, and do you remember what he said? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And it was out of that affection, out of that confidence that God the Father gave Jesus that he had in Jesus, that he gave Jesus this mission to be the cornerstone of his building project. You see, God had supreme confidence that Jesus could do the job, that Jesus as the cornerstone would uphold and carry everything that God would build. 
Jesus is strong enough. Jesus is sturdy enough to serve in that role. Can you remember the day when you became a Christian? Uh, maybe it wasn't a particular day. Maybe it was a season of your life that you look back on. That, that's what it was for me. I became a Christian my first semester in college at the University of Michigan. And when you became a Christian on that day or during that season, you committed to building your life on the foundational stone of Jesus Christ. And before that day, you were building something as well. You were building your life on other things. Maybe it was money. Maybe it was the praise of people. Maybe it was a hedonistic pleasure or self-protection or relationships. You were building your life on something. And sometimes today, even as Christians, we're still tempted to build our lives on these other things. But all of those foundational stones will crumble and fail you. Because nothing is strong enough to uphold you and uphold what God is building in your life except Jesus. So listen, if you want to be on mission for Jesus, if you want to be successful and effective on mission, if you want to endure ridicule for your faith, you must build your life on something sturdy and true. And that's Jesus. Jesus alone, nothing else, no one else will serve as your cornerstone. You know, I, I think one of the reasons God brings chaos and suffering and hardship and confusion into our lives, he ordains those things, is because he wants us to believe this truth. So brothers and sisters, build your life on Jesus. Build your identity on Jesus. And if you do that, you will be steady. You will be secure through the storms of life and through persecution. Notice the passage says something else about this cornerstone. Not only is he precious and chosen, look at verse 4. It says, this living stone was rejected by men. In verse 7, he was the stone that the builders rejected. Verse 8, the stone that caused some to stumble and fall. Verses 6, 7, and 8 are Old Testament passages which, which present this cornerstone as God's future Messiah that will come back and bring redemption to God's people. Before erecting a building, the ancient stone masons would search piles of rocks for boulders that would, would be of the right size for the cornerstone, for that foundational stone. They would examine these rocks and they would inspect them one by one. They would disc- discard the ones that didn't work and they would finally see the perfect stone, the perfect boulder on which they could build their building. Now, apparently, human builders passed on the messianic stone of Jesus. They, they cast that stone aside. They, they rejected him. They chose to build their lives on something else. And these were the Jewish religious leaders who took Jesus to the cross. But these are also every person in every age who reject Christ as the cornerstone of their life. For those people, Jesus becomes a stumbling stone, a stone that will cause them to eventually fall. These are are people who will disbelieve and disobey Jesus for a lifetime. Those folks will eventually trip and fall over Jesus, which is a euphemistic way of saying they're going to get judgment and they're going to get hell. So this is serious business. So friend, if you are not a Christian here, this is probably the most important thing I can say to you this morning. 
There is no in-between with Jesus, the cornerstone. There is no in-between with Jesus, the cornerstone. You either relate to him with faith and you build your life on him, or you relate to him by rejecting him, by disobeying him, and then you fall, and then you stumble. There is no halfway with Jesus. There's no, you know, there's none of this, I kind of respect him. I kind of follow him. I kind of obey him. I give him part of my life. I think he's a good teacher. He's a good role model for my kids. No, it's either all or nothing with Jesus. So if that's you, would you take this moment this morning? Would you repent of your sins? Would you believe in Jesus today? Would you make today the day of your faith? Would you renounce the false foundations of your life, which will crumble at some point? Would you commit to building your life on Jesus? So that's the first thing that we see in this passage. Christians are built on Jesus, the cornerstone, who's chosen, precious, and rejected. So what happens if you do become part of God's building project? If you do believe? What brings us to the second identity theme in this passage You see this in verse 5. We are built together as living stones. We are built together as living stones. Let me read verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are living stones, like bricks being put together on walls that build up the spiritual house. That's the picture that we see here. In verse 5. Now, this is not just a random building. This is a spiritual house. It's in particular the temple of God. In the Old Testament, the temple was a building where God was present. But here's one of the happy surprises of the New Testament the temple is no longer a physical building, it's a spiritual people. It's the church. You don't have to run to Jerusalem. You don't have to run to a physical temple in order to experience God's presence and power. You gotta go to church. You gotta come to church. You gotta be with God's people. That's why many of you, all of you, I'm sure, are here because you want to experience God's presence and his power. And you can do that. Now, we're living stones because we share in Jesus' resurrection life, because we're built on Jesus, the living stone. We have his life. And what that means is, this is really important, this is really the heartbeat of this passage, so I want you to listen closely. What that means is that we recapitulate his life. His story is chosen, precious, and rejected. That's the story of Jesus And because we are living stones, his story becomes our story. And therefore, his identity as chosen, precious, and rejected becomes our identity. I want you to look at verses 9 and 10 to see just how we are chosen and precious. Let me read these verses to you again. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Now, much of this is Old Testament language uh, that described God's Old Testament people, which is Israel. And what Peter does is he's using that same intimate language about Israel. He's pulling it forward. He's applying it to the church. We were once excluded from God's family. There was no mercy for us. We had no security, no hope for the future, no strength for the present, no forgiveness of sins. But that all changed with Jesus, didn't it? We were once not a people. We were splintered and divided, doing our own thing all over the place. But but look around this room. All kinds of people gather together as one only because of Jesus. Now we are God's people, a family. We once had not received mercy, but now each day, We receive mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Have you heard of the Michael Orr story? Michael Orr. His story was made famous by the movie Blindside. Has watched that story, read the book, Blindside, Sandra Bullock, etc. Michael Orr, uh, it's it's based on a true story. Michael Orr grew up in, in some rough neighborhoods in Memphis, Tennessee. He was one of 12 children. His mother was an alcoholic, And cocaine addict, his father was in and out of prison and eventually murdered in prison. He received very little family attention or discipline, and so he was just kind of wandering around. He was at one point homeless. He repeated first and second grades. He attended 11 different schools in his first nine years as a student. But then a woman named Leanne and her husband, Sean, who had children in Michael's school, let him live with them. They took him in. And they eventually adopted him as their son. They loved him. They they cared for him as he was recovering from all the trauma of his childhood. And over time, Michael became a football star in high school. He attended the University of Mississippi he eventually was drafted in the first round to play for the Baltimore Ravens. Michael Orr went from a life of abandonment and homelessness and drugs and sin into a loving family. And then into a team that had a common purpose. Does that sound familiar? That's the Christian story as well in many ways. We were orphans, fatherless, motherless, longing to belong somewhere, looking for a home. We carried wounds and injuries, some self-inflicted from our own sins, others inflicted by others. But then someone gave us mercy. Someone adopted us. Someone placed us into this wonderful new family called the church. Someone began to bandage up our wounds and make us whole. Someone put us on a team and gave us a purpose. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Amen? Now we are precious in God's sight. Now we are chosen. We belong to him. Isn't that something else? 
This is something, brothers and sisters, that we need to linger on. We need to meditate on the love of God for his church. We need to really feel this deep down. If you want to know who you are, if you want to know how to survive and thrive in this world that may oppose you, you've got to learn that you are chosen and precious in God's sight. But there's more. Like Jesus, we are, yes, chosen and precious, but we are also rejected. That's also what it means to be the living stone built on the living stone. That's also part of our Christian identity, and and this is a part that I think we often don't understand or accept. Sometimes we think that when when you become a Christian, everything gets easier and simpler. Life is good and happy. Money is going to flow. But we see something else here with Peter. Life might actually get harder and more complex when you become a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to put yourself in the category of shame. To be a Christian means putting yourself down on the social ladder. Now, this doesn't excuse any kind of obnoxious or mean or arrogant behavior or words towards our non-Christian friends. It doesn't give us a, a pass to be a jerk to them. We're always called to speak the truth in love. But it does mean that to align yourself with Jesus means to expect and embrace shame and rejection. To be a Christian means to be rejected. That's the life you committed to when you called on the name of Jesus. That's the life God called you to. Now, isn't that something else? What would it look like, uh, brothers and sisters, if this church, all of us together, if we expected shame as we are on mission for Jesus? Well, for one, we wouldn't care as much about what people thought of us. We would be so bold and courageous as we're sharing Christ, wouldn't we? We would take risks. We would step out in faith in new ways. We would feel more free to give of ourselves, to sacrifice Now think about that one person in your life who you're scared will mock you for your faith. Can you think of one person? Maybe you think of like 10 people, but but pick one person out of that 10 who as you talk to this person, man, it's just intimidating. Maybe it's an obnoxious uncle who you're going to see at Thanksgiving in just a few days. Maybe it's a neighbor who's really opinionated. Maybe it's an intelligent friend who likes to debate and put you down. Now, what would your relationship look like if you accepted that part of your Christian identity is one of shame? How would you talk differently to that person? How would you serve and love and risk differently in that relationship? It would transform us if we believe that we're not only chosen and precious, but like Jesus, we are rejected, and that's part of who we are as Christians. Now look again at verse 5. Living stones mean, mean something else as well. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So what we see here is a, a close relationship with other believers because we share in this common life, this common resurrection life. 
We aren't stones lying about in idle isolation or disorder. It's not like there's a bunch of stones piled up over here or, or scattered in some field. We are built together into a spiritual house. Christians aren't individuals, individually temples of God, only together we are God's temple. You know, there's no such thing as a Christianity that has a bunch of isolated Christians all over the South Shore. That's not Christianity. Christianity, in its very essence, is communal and corporate. It's we, not I. That's Christianity. So the wrong question is, how do I persevere as a cultural minority and moral outlaw? That's the wrong question. The right question is, how do we persevere as cultural minorities and moral outlaws? And uh, I think part of the answer to that question is in the question itself. We do it together. Together we can persevere. Mission should never be thought about as what we do as individuals. You were never meant to be on mission by yourself. We were meant to be on mission. You are not designed to be successful in fully making disciples. We are designed as bricks on bricks, as living stones that are melded together. We were designed to be successful and effective in fully making disciples. The problem with our hyper-individualized culture is that it puts pressure on each of us to apply all of these different biblical mandates in isolation. But they were never meant to be read or thought of in that way. It's we, brothers and sisters, that ought to apply these commandments you know, this reminds me of uh, Navy SEAL training. Not that I've done that before, but I've seen uh, movies and read books a little bit. You guys laughed way too hard at that joke. <laughs> wow. Well, that's motivation for more exercise. <laughs> Whew. So it, it does remind me of Na- Navy SEAL training. And what I mean by that is, you know, Navy SEALs, they're not looking to build up and train up individuals to be excellent. They're looking to to build teams of people to be well-prepared and excellent in what they do. And you've probably seen these pictures or videos of, of groups of people bearing the weight of these heavy boats, these black boats in the water. Of course, none of them could do that on their own. You had to share the load. I think understanding our corporate identity, that's that it's we that's on mission. It doesn't take the burden of disciple-making off our shoulders. It just simply redistributes the weight. It shifts the weight so that other brothers and sisters can share the load. So our identity is built, first of all, on Jesus Christ. And we are, like him, chosen, precious, and rejected. There's one more piece, and we've already hinted at it. Here's the third theme. We are built for the mission. We're built for the mission. We have a missional identity. We're not just the temple, but according to verse 5 and verse 9, we are the temple workers. You see that? We are the priests, royal priests. And royal priests are made up of representatives that go forth with the good news. They mediate God's presence and his rule to other people. They offer their lives as spiritual sacrifices. A holy nation, you see that in verse 9? That's not just talking about the purity, the moral purity of God's people. 
A holy nation is a people who are set apart as distinct from the surrounding culture. Verse 9 says that we are to declare God's praises to others. Verse 12 says that we're to live in such a way that the pagans will see our deeds and glorify God. So here's the point. When you were saved, you were not only saved from your sins, from God's wrath. You were not only saved into this wonderful new family, the church, you were also saved for a mission. Your identity isn't just chosen, precious, rejected. It's also missionary. That's part of who you are now. You are an ambassador. And being on mission for Christ isn't an optional extra, you know, for super Christians and pastors and missionaries. It's not level two or level 10 Christianity. It's not an add-on or an expansion pack or an accessory to Christianity. Mission is intrinsic to who we are as God's people. If you're a child of God, you're a missionary. If you're a living stone, you are being built together to be on mission. It's one of the main purposes of this temple structure that God is building. You know, I think overseas missionaries understand this very well. I think about uh, Blaine Boyd or our, our very own Seth and Cindy Rogers or Josh Lundquist. You know, they, they raise support, they prepare, and they train, and they head out. And right now, as Blaine wakes up every morning, he recognizes quickly that one of his primary identities is missionary, is ambassador. It's not an optional extra for Blaine. It's part and parcel of who he is as a resident of Dubai. So brothers and sisters, let's try this on for size this week. When you wake up tomorrow morning, when you wake up tomorrow morning, I want to encourage you to think of yourself as a missionary as an ambassador, because God has called you to be a missionary on the south shore of Boston. Being a missionary is not just about something extra to do. It's, again, it's part of who you are. So let's review what we've uh, talked about so far. You're a Christian. You're built on Jesus. You're built together as living stones, and you're also built for the mission. So those are some pillar truths for you to carry into your week as you're um, perhaps facing rejection. I asked my Indonesian uh, waitress friend, Mabel, one time during breakfast, how did you get through all that stuff in Indonesia? I'll never forget her answer. She said, Godwin, I'm a child of the king. When the king called me, he called me to this life. You, Christian friend, were destined to be chosen and precious to God, the apple of his eye, the joy of his heart, his beloved sheep. He delights over you with songs, not because you are valuable in and of yourself, but because his precious and chosen son, Jesus, is infinitely valuable. And your life has been joined to Christ's life by faith. And so when God the Father looks at us and he addresses the world, he says, these are my beloved sons and daughters with whom I am well pleased. That's who we are. But brothers and sisters, we are also destined to be rejected in this world. That's who we are as well. Because that's who Jesus was. 
He got the cross first, and then he got the crown. And so in this season of our lives, we get the cross. When you became a Christian, you were not called to be cool or climb the social ladder or win the respect of the world. You were called to pick up your cross. You were called to die to yourself and die to your ego and your reputation. And when you do that, when you really endure with a smile on your face like my friend Mabel, you will have such a witness. You will make such a splash. You will be so strange and peculiar and magnetic that the world will know that Jesus is real and that you are his. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it's hard to be a Christian. We lack courage. We're cowardly. We're too proud to risk shame. Forgive us for these attitudes, Father. Help us to know who we are as Christians. Help us to feel the preciousness of the grace you've granted us. Help us to feel like your precious people. Help us also to feel the reality of shame and rejection, that this is who we are, and we ask you, Lord, for the grace to persevere. Help us to know and live out our corporate identity as members of this local church, partner together in life and ministry to go forth with the gospel together. Thank you for Jesus who died for our sins and who gives us new life and is the the forerunner of our collective stories. Cross now, crown later. Help us to live that out together, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.